So we turn to Job 29, reading the entirety of that chapter, God's Word. From the Old Testament, Job chapter 29, God's Word. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless, who had none to help me, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters and and with dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So how do you know when someone is your friend? Well, the, or in what's the difference between a close friend and a mere acquaintance or a fair weather friend? Well, generally, this isn't too difficult to tease out, for a true friend cares about you and does you good. They keep your secrets and they don't shame your faults. A friend can be a helping hand and a listening ear. You have common interests and activities that you share with your friend, as well as you sharpen each other so that you grow and improve together. And the time you spend with one another, whether through through, uh, smooth or rough days, knit your lives together, which gives meaning, memories, companionship, and joy. The best of friends makes your life shine brighter and helps you to flourish more. Invaluable is such a bosom friend. But is this the only model of close friendship? Can a friend cause you much trouble and still be true? 
Well, in his ongoing dialogue or monologue here, Job explores this dilemma, which enables us to think deeper and more wisely about our relationship with God. So after Job's majestic poetry on wisdom, he holds onto the microphone and stays on stage. The friends are at a loss for words, but he still has a basket full of things to say. Thus he launches into his lengthy final speech, which covers three chapters, 29, 30, and 31. And he opens his closing arguments with a nostalgic wish. An emotional pining for the past comes over him and puts him in a mood to reminisce. He indulges a trip down memory lane back to the good old days. Now, as a person ages and tastes more of life's bitterness, it's easy to dream fondly for your, your youthful days. This was when you were still handsome, healthy, and life seemed sweeter and more vibrant. Thus, Job rubs the lamp makes a wish. Oh, that I was in the months of old. If only I could turn back the clock to the bright moons of my previous life. Job is wishful thinking for time travel. Now, as they say, the secret to the good old days is most often a bad memory. But Job makes an exception here, for there's no dimension in his mind. For note how he paints his once upon a time which covers this entire chapter. What were Job's months of yesteryear like? Well, it begins with God. Back then was when God um, over uh, watched over him. And this language echoes the ironic benediction, may the Lord bless you and keep you. It also smells of Psalm 121 that sings of the Lord's constant keeping of his people. Such watching is God's covenantal oversight, protection, and care. Thus, he goes on, God's lamp shone on Job's head. He walked in darkness by the very light of the Lord. And this phraseology is reminiscent of the glory cloud guiding Israel in the wilderness. For God's light is his presence and favor to guide you with knowledge, insight, and discernment. And he waxes on further. This was when Job was in his prime and God's friendship rested upon his tent. And the Almighty was yet with him. Now this line unveils um, the main theme of this chapter and even for the entire book. God's friendship with Job lies at the heart of what this book is about. For God and Job had an ideal friendship. This, Satan slandered by saying Job only loved God for his money, and so then the Lord allowed Job to, Job to be suffered and to, to suffer and to be tested. Hence, Job wishes to go back to the time when he and God were yet friends. In fact, this first line of verse 5, the Almighty was yet with him, links back to chapter 6, verse 4, when Job said, the arrows of the Almighty are with me. The Emmanuel friendship has been replaced with poison arrows sticking out of Job as if he was a pincushion. The contrast is stark. Yet Job is dwelling on the pleasures of the past for the moment, and so he continues. In months long past, God's friendship was glorious, and all his kids surrounded Job. 
Note here that the bereaved father aches to have his dead children back. He misses them deeply. And so he dreams when, of the time when all his kids filled the family room at a holiday feast. The family photo album of Job is opened, and we see a picture of Grandpa Job flanked by daughters and sons and with a lap full of grandkids. And yet Job weeps for his past family bliss as an explicit sign and blessing of God's friendship. He doesn't long for the good old days purely for themselves, but as the evidence and seal of the Lord's friendship. Thus he continues to list off the splendid bounties of God's companionship. He says his steps were washed in butter and out of the rock streams of oil flowed for him. Such was his luxuriant and extravagant wealth as God's gift. His daily pedicure was done with heavy whipping cream. Extra virgin olive oil was so abundant that it flowed in his ditches. Moreover, Job borrows this imagery from Deuteronomy 32 and the Lord's romantic courting of Israel in the wilderness. This was the season of young love between God and Job. Next, Job transitions to the benefits of God's friendship in the public realm. Having a friendship with God isn't just about your inner subjective feelings, but it is vindicated and revealed in your societal relations. Thus, Job spent time in the city gate where he established for himself a seat. Now, the city gate was the place of court and business. Communal life orbited around the gate of the city. And to have a seat in the gate was a position of honor, recognition, and authority. Nobles, judges, and sages were given chairs in the gate. And Job's honor was off the charts. Note that kids saw Job and hid. The gray-held elders stood out of respect for Job. Now, the etiquette of the day was that you stood up to honor your elders... And kids did not horse around before their elders. Well, even the honorable elders rise here to give deference to Job. The princes saw Job and put their palm over their mouths. The nobles were hushed and mute in the presence of Job. Now, to silence yourself before another acknowledges acknowledges that they are wise and learned. It's proper humility to someone who is superior than you. Thus the ears heard Job and blessed him. Eyes watched him and attested, approbated, and approved of him. Now Job, recounting all this public honors, might at first sound like he's blowing his horn a bit too much. Pat yourself on your back, don't you? But this is not, what, this is not Job's ego flexing. Rather, such public honors are external evidence of his blessedness. To boast about yourself is hollow, but if others brag about you, it's more meaningful. Thus, this is Job recalling how others honored him supremely. And he continues this dynamic as he tells the tale of his public righteousness. The city gave Job the highest chair, and from it he delivered the poor who cried out. It says he rescued the orphan who had no helper. 
That six-year-old girl that was homeless and scrounged in the seat like a rat, Job took her in his, in his arms and found her a new home. The widow living on the knife edge of destitution, he provided for her to make her heart full of joy. Like a seeing eye dog, Job was eyes to the blind. He drove the cripple around town for their appointments and shopping. He was a father to the needy and the disadvantaged. Job also played the role of public defender for those who had no advocate, who couldn't afford an attorney. Job represented them in court pro bono. He even executed justice upon the cruel oppressor, the human, human trafficker, and the wicked bully. It says he broke the jaw of the unjust. He ripped the prey from their teeth. That is, loan sharks were put out of business, mob bosses convicted, and thieving employers were punished under the uprightness of Job. He canceled the debt of the bankrupt, he freed those wrongly held captive, and he bound up the wounds of the broken. His public righteousness was blemish-free and rather awe-inspiring. But why does Job only highlight his neighborly piety? Note here he doesn't mention his religious devotion at church. He doesn't underscore his private integrity. He doesn't tell us how extensive his prayer life was. Rather, Job speaks only about his public righteousness. Why? Again, because it is easily proven and known. All these deeds of Job are public record. Also, if someone tells you that you love your neighbor more than everyone else, but they have nothing to show for it, it means rather little. For love is known by its works. If your feelings of compassion remain inside of you, what good are they? The hungry are not satisfied by your feelings. The naked can't wear your emotions. Job, though, lived out his upright love. He put his money where his mouth was. Furthermore, all this wonderful charity and justice carried out by Job images God as if in a clear mirror. A father to the orphan, a helper to the lowly, a defender of the vulnerable, a listener to those who cry out in pain? These are doxological uh, refrains for God throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Thus, Job's uprightness imitates God, and divine imitation is the highest form of piety. Likewise, close friends often resemble each other. Their characters often match. So living out the image of the Lord, Job shows himself to be the best friend of God. Job's Job's nostalgic wishful thinking, though, is not quite done. Under the friendship of the Almighty, the Lord, Job now goes on and talks about how he was sure that he would die in his nest, safely at home with loved ones, that his days would be numbered like the sand of the sea, for his roots drank deeply of the streams of water and dew danced upon his branches. His glory and vigor were ever new, and the bow in his hand always hit its target. Job was was like one of those 60-year-olds that looked 25. 
He was the guy that got more handsome with age, the silver fox. Who could best vigorous men half his age? His vitality, health, and mental acuity was so sharp and bright, everyone knew he had been touched by heaven. Kind of like a hobbit, a drinking ent draft, there was something magical about his fitness and fervor. Yet Job's effervescent health wasn't just for himself. Instead, the fire of his mind burned for others. He employed the acuity of his understanding to shower blessings. Note it goes on. People waited in hope to listen to Job. They were silent to take in his advice and insight. After he addressed the public, they didn't retort or question him with rancor or skepticism, but they were silent. People waited for his words to fall as dew, as the drizzle of autumn rain. Note it says, the people opened their mouths to Job's wise words as if to drink spring showers. When he smiled on, on them, they could barely believe it. When his face shone upon them, they did not let fall a single ray of light from Job's face. Dear Abby had nothing on Job, as his advice was like the rain and dew for life. Indeed, so effective and inspired was Job's counsel that he is pictured here like a prophet king. This image of water, of words dripping from Job, is used also of the Lord's word dripping from the prophets in other places in the Old Testament. Likewise, it says Job sat as chief and he lived like a king among his troops. Now, as far as we know, Job was not actually royalty, but he lived like a king. That is, kings speak and all heed. Kings point the way, and all his men follow without question. So also Job chose the best ways for the people to live and to make decisions. His wisdom was the recipe that everyone followed. Yet Job is not your typical king. Striving for power, playing at political games was not his thing. Instead, it says he sat at the head like one who comforts mourners. Job was the king of comforters. He was royalty at assuaging grief, relieving pain, and quieting anxiety. Most monarchs spend their time puffing up their own pomp and glory, and they do not have time for the sad and the depressed. But Job sat on the throne given to him for the consolation of the miserable and the downcast the brokenhearted, and the pitiable. Once again, we cannot but be impressed with Job's autobiographic reminiscing. This was what Job's life of old was like. Indeed, after hearing this, who wouldn't want to be part of Job's town? And yet all these pictures in Job's family photo album distill into a single profound profile of Job's character, which is found in verse 14. It says, I dressed in righteousness, and it dressed me. Justice was my cloak and turban. 
the very clothes that covered him, the outfit of his identity was justice and righteousness. Now this is remarkable for one because this pair of justice and righteousness expresses ideal uprightness, perfect morality in the Old Testament. Secondly, Job didn't just dress himself in righteousness, but righteousness dressed up Job. It was as if righteousness was Dr. Strange's cloak of levitation seeking a worthy person to cover, and it found Job. The righteous garment was pursuing and searching until it located Job and it pounced upon him. Such a metaphor doesn't merely communicate that Job possessed the virtue of righteousness, but more so that righteousness and Job are one. The morality of Job is so lofty that we naturally react with suspicion. Surely this is just the hyperbole of a salesman. It is the exaggeration of the fisherman, the fuzzy memory of idealizing the past. And yet Job's biography here matches Yahweh's boast of him to Satan in chapter 1. He said, have you seen Job? No one is like him Perfect and upright. God called Job perfect, and here we witness the slideshow of Job's ideal righteousness. And yet, what is the point of all this wishful nostalgia? Why rehearse the atmospheric blessings and uprightness of Job's past life? Well, because such a full life embodies what it means to be friends with God. The Lord's friendship was the thesis statement given in the opening verses. The intimacy of God's companionship rewarded Job with rich blessings and honor. And Job's imitation of the Lord's righteousness was his devoted friendship and love to God. This is what close friendship looks like between God and a human. Job then writes his autobiography to prove that the friendship he had with God was real. And he wishes for the old days in order to mourn that it's no longer so. That is, Job defines here friendship with God as a bond of blessing and righteousness. The Lord watches over Job, and Job is upright to image God in return. This is intimacy between the divine and the human. Hence, if God now deals out suffering to Job, while Job remained upright, then the friendship is broken, and it is shattered from the Lord's side. Note that Job does not bring a charge against God for being unjust, but he does lay at God's feet the failure to be a friend. Thus, Job sees as incompatible being God's friend and suffering the agony that he's been tortured with. As he said several times before, God has become an enemy to Job. For no discernible reason, God flipped to be Job's foe. Now, if Job sinned, then of course his suffering is fatherly discipline. This would be understandable. 
But Job remained a righteous friend and yet was still tortured by God. This can only mean that God has been a bad friend. To suffer for nothing from a friend surely spells the hostility of the Lord. And this dilemma is the one that we struggle with too. Sure, we are nowhere near as upright as Job. He is better than us. Thus, the fatherly discipline often explains our hardships as we brought it upon ourselves. Yet there are other times in our lives where our suffering seems to have no purpose, no reason that we can tease out. And such unexplained distress, our first instinct is to think, I guess God doesn't love me. God's no longer my friend. Why else am I suffering? Pointless anguish and God's friendship we deem to be incompatible, incompatible, offensive, and illogical. A true friend doesn't harm you for no reason. However, is this thinking sound? Does God feeding us with tribulation mean, by definition, that he's no longer our friend, but now our foe? Well, the logic seems sound. A true friend, or and, and the Job's friend sure thought so. And such thinking would pass the test if it wasn't for one piece of glaring evidence, namely Christ. The righteousness of Jesus was truly holy. His justice surpassed even that of Job. That the fact that death could not hold Jesus is indisputable proof from heaven that Jesus was perfect in justice and righteousness. Likewise, the Father declared twice at the baptism and the transfiguration of Jesus his love for the Son. Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The voice from heaven confirmed the friendship, love, and unity between the Father and the Son. God and Jesus had no issues between them, for they are one in essence from eternity and bound by holy love and intimacy. And yet the Father dealt the Son a life of agony and public shame. In their bond, the Father unleashed harm upon Christ. God gave Jesus poor parents, brothers that did not like him, and a job that was not lucrative. The Father didn't adorn Jesus with public honors like Job. Sure, Jesus had his moments of fame, but these quickly turned into the authorities slandering Jesus. As it says, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He had no seat in the city gate and little respect from kids and elders. And all this shame and suffering culminated in a short life for Jesus, where he was executed naked as the foulest criminal. With all the trauma of Jesus' life and death, how could he be the friend of the Father? Nevertheless, the love between the Father and Son remained true and perfect. How is this? It did because the agony Jesus endured was for us. The Father tormented the Son for our salvation. And the Son volunteered to take upon all this misery 
from the Father to redeem us. God became the Father to us. We orphans living in sin, and he did by giving up his son unto death. Thus, Jesus is the king of comfort for us because he tasted the poison of the Father. Christ suffered the punishment of our sin so that he could snatch us out of the teeth of death. Therefore, our redemption and eternal life is found in this very dilemma. How can the loving Father judge in agony the well-pleasing Son? Well, he can, and he did, because the Father loved you enough to give you his Son to save you from your sins. And as the Father had a rough path laid out for Christ, so he does for us. Sure, sometimes the Father disciplines us for our misstep. Other times we receive evil days from the Father's hands for no clear reason or purpose. But this unexplained suffering we experience doesn't mean that God is no longer your friend. Indeed, having purchased us with the death of Christ, having been covered in Christ's righteousness and sealed with the Spirit in our hearts, nothing can take God's love and friendship away from you. Thus, Job's dilemma and Christ's answer teaches us not to doubt the steadfast love of God that never ends and never fails, even when it dishes out pain for us. In fact, with Christ as our elder brother who went before us, who suffered in deeper ways that we, will, that we never will, this makes Jesus the king of our comfort. Yes, Jesus knows how to encourage you and sustain you through all the evils of life, and he does so by the gospel of his grace. Yes, Christ and his word is your light in dark places. The lamp of Christ is over your head, and his friendship will never depart from your tent. For he keeps you always, for all the father he all the people that the father gave him he will not lose one jesus does not forsake you thus praise the lord for the friendship of god sealed and confirmed and ratified forever in christ amen